Hello, my friends, and uh, welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. This is going to be episode 35, episode 35, and um, this is not going to be about Lent uh, right now. I know we're pretty much at the end of the uh, the fifth week of Lent, but um, this is going to be a different subject. Um, how many of you... Um, are familiar with the Lord of the Rings? How many of you are familiar with Tolkien's work? The Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, the Similarian, uh, the Fall of Gondor, of Fall of Gondolin, uh, the Children of of Huru, uh, or the story of uh, Lutheran and Baron. You know the that story, which is supposed to be a very popular love story but how many of you are also uh, have you seen the movies the original three by uh, Peter Jackson Fellowship of the Ring the two the uh, the two towers the return of the king um, I've seen those and um, yes uh, well I didn't see um, the Hobbit in the theaters that I didn't see um, yeah, I mean, that wasn't as popular, wasn't as good. I mean, um, wasn't exactly like the book that put too much into it, but, you know, unfortunately that, that's Hollywood. The studios, um, wanted another success like the, you know, the Lord of the Rings, but, you know, they wound up putting too much. I... I really thought that uh, you know that was disappointing, but it is what it is. But now, Amazon um, won bought the rights, uh, the license, uh, not the the rights of the books or anything like that. There's a difference. Um, they're gonna do something called the Ring of Power. It's supposed to be a, uh, done in as a prequel. Um, it's supposed to take place with, I guess, around, uh, I don't know if it's the Second Age, because Tolkien has a history, a whole history, to his um, Lord of the Rings. He is like the... Uh, first age the second age and of course the third age is where uh we get the uh at the end of the third age we get the story of the uh, uh bilbo uh frodo um the fellowship of the ring the destruction of the uh of the ring that's done on the all in the third age and it goes it goes into the fourth age which after that we don't really get a story but tolkien wrote a whole history a whole history of events. Um, he also wrote something called the Similarian. He never really finished it. All the other stuff, those other books, uh, the Similarian, uh, uh, Baron Luthien, um, the Fall of Gondolin, the, uh, uh, the Children of Huru, all that was all posthumous work. And some of it is referenced in the Similarian, 
in the legendarium of uh, Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth. He, some of it he put into appendices. Now, this article here I have uh, from Crisis Magazine. It's about Amazon's purchasing of Tolkien's appendices. Um, it's by Ben Reinhardt, February 16th, 2022. And um, a lot of people are upset about it. If you go on YouTube, you'll get a, a lot of Tolkien fans. And there's a... Um, one of the Tolkien scholars uh, either quit or was fired by Amazon... Uh, his name is uh, Shipley, I believe his. I'm, I've heard him talk in other documentaries. He's a, He even knew J.R. Tolkien. Um, much of the other books, like the Similarian I mentioned, Fall of Gundolin, Children of Huru, um, uh, ba Baron Luthien, or uh, those things were put together by Christopher Tolkien, from uh, leftover writings, unfinished paper, you know, unfinished stories uh, by his son, Christopher Tolkien. Uh, J.R. Tolkien never really got into finishing those things. Um, but I'm not too clear how I understand all this. There's a Tolkien estate and there's a licensed products that own, I guess some of Tolkien's stuff. And games, film, is different than the writings. Um, I guess that makes sense because uh, it would. But anyway, the Tolkien family kept the rights to the Similarian. They kept the rights to some of his other stuff. Which is good. Uh, he's got grandchildren out there. Some of them are writers. Some of them have become lawyers. I mean, you know, there's um, descendants out there. Um, I don't know how they feel about their grandfather's work. But I guess it would make sense that they would want to make money. I mean, that that's only fair, right? Well, anyway, we're going to go into this article. And, um, you know, I'm... I'm not happy about Amazon's, um, what they're planning to do. And there's nothing, of course, what difference does it make what I, whatever I feel, uh, or I guess what any of us feel, because it, at the end, of the, the end of the day, it's all business. It's business for some people. They're going to make money out of it. And it's kind of amazing to me how one man's work can um, affect generations and it's sad if some of them don't appreciate it if some of them don't share his uh, his you know his philosophy his views his his faith it's kind of sad it really is it's sad how how that how that in a sense can um, can you know can can make you know can just simply fall to the wayside and I think it's sad because we live in a materialistic age. We live in such an unbelievable materialistic age that it
blindsides us to past generations, to especially someone like J.R. Tolkien, who who had quite an amazing life and had a quite an amazing career. I mean, he wasn't a fantasy writer by trade. That wasn't really what he went out to do. He was originally a philologist, a lover of language. And he was a devout Catholic. And as much as some articles, there were some articles that try to say that, that Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, were not, nothing to do with Christian faith, which is absolutely hogwash. Of course, they have something to do with his faith. He, he's, you know, it's all based on, he said it himself in some of his writing. It's, it's fundamentally a Catholic uh, work. And you have to look, you have to be able to understand what he's referencing. He took his faith, he took what he believed, and he expressed it in the realm of mythology. He re expressed it in a, in a uh, theological way. He used mythological themes, mythological um, tropes to describe what he believes in. So this is... We're going to go into this a little bit. I want to go into first his, his life, uh, what I know about his life. Uh, so, you know, I'm glad, you know, if you're, if you're interested, I hope you are. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's going to be based on, based on what I know and what I've read and what I've heard from other documentaries. And I'm going to try to explain it. Um, Basically, from my perspective, as someone who's also who's a convert to Catholicism, and uh, what what his work has done for me, so um, it's you know, if any mistakes, it's mine, or many many misinterpretations, or I got things wrong, it's all on me. But you know, um, I have a great respect for it, and I'm going to tell you how I got into Tolkien. All right, so uh, let's begin. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we'll say in our Father and one Hail Mary, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So, John Reynolds. Rual Tolkien was born January 3rd, 1892. He passed away September 2nd, 1973. Okay, so um, he was, you know, he's best known for his high fantasy works, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Okay, so um, he uh, passed away at the age of 81 years of age. It's interesting, his son... Christopher Tolkien passed away at 95. Amazing. Um, he was born in Bournemouth, Hampshire. That's J.R. Tolkien himself in England. Uh, he, was he was an academic philologist, poet, 
All right, he was uh, very much into all the uh, uh, stuff about uh, Beowulf, uh, Old English. I mean, he knew Old English. He knew some of the most uh, oldest English languages. He knew Latin. He knew Greek. And I believe he also knew Hebrew and some Aramaic. He studied he studied some of these languages, but his main languages were, of course, Northern Western European languages such as Finnish, Finland, or the stuff of uh, this ancient Scandinavian, ancient Germanic languages. That was mostly his specialty, I believe. Um, he has, um, you know, he's only he's only been married to one wife all his life, uh, Edith. Brat, Brat, who passed away um, in 1971. He was survived by John Francis, who was born in 1917, who died in 2003. Uh, uh, Michael Hillary, 1920-1984. And then Christopher uh, Tolkien, who, pa- who was born in 1924 and passed away in 19... Uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, in 2020. And Priscilla Ann, uh, nineteen twenty nine. She passed away in nineteen twenty. I mean, in twenty twenty two. I'm getting these dates wrong. Um, he was uh, from. Uh, let me see here. So try to get his early, his biography here. Okay. Tolkien's immediate paternal ancestors were middle class craftsmen who made and sold clocks, watches, pianos in London and Birmingham. The Tolkien family originated in East uh, Prussian town of Krausberg near uh, Konigsberg, which had been founded during the medieval German eastward expansion, where his earliest known paternal ancestors, Michael... uh, Tolkien was born around 1620, and then he had also ancestors, uh, Christanos Tolkien, born in 1663, died in 1746. His family goes way back uh, and was a wealthy miller. His, um, his son, uh, Then, of course, they had sons and children and everything, and they went back and they made their way to England. Uh, okay, uh so uh, some of the members of, of the same family as J.R. Tolkien live in northern Germany, but most of them are descendants of people who uh, left the Prussian, uh, evacuated the East Prussian Empire. Um, according to uh, his childhood, Tolkien's childhood, John Tolkien was born again on January 3rd, 1892 in Blymouth Fountain in Orange Free State, uh, later annexed by the British Empire, now uh, Free State provinces in the Republic of South Africa. Um, and uh, I'm guessing maybe he was born in South Africa then, okay. Um, so um, his, uh, his father was an English, Arthur Rawl Tolkien, who was born 1857-1896, is an English bank manager, and his five, his wife, Maple, uh, who was 1904, the couple couple had left England when Arthur was promoted 
to head the Blymouth Fountain office of the British Bank, for which he worked. Tolkien had one sibling, his younger brother, Hilary Arthur Rual Tolkien, who was born uh, February 17th, 1894. As a child, Tolkien uh, was bitten by a large baboon spider. So that's where the, the uh, Shelob uh, spider came from. In the garden, an event some believe to have been later echoed in his stories, although he admitted no actual memory of the event and no special hatred of spiders as an adult. Well, I, I think we all beg to differ on that one. In an earlier incident from Tolkien's uh, infancy, a young family servant took the baby to his homestead, returning him to the next next morning. When he was three, he went he went to England with his mother and his brother on what was intended to be a lengthy family visit. His father, however, died in South Africa of of a fever before he could join them. This left the family without an income, so Tolkien's mother took him to live with her parents in King's King's Heath, uh, Birmingham. Soon after, in 1896, they moved to Sarah Hall, now in Hall Green, then in uh, then to Worcestershire Village, later in annexed to Birmingham. He enjoyed exploring. Uh, the Serhol Mill and Mosley Bog, and the uh, and you know and other areas which would later inspire scenes in his book, along with nearby towns and villages, says, uh, you know nearby towns, and places such as his aunt Jane's farm, which is called Bag End. Now you see. The name of which he used in his fiction, the uh, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Mabel Tolkien taught her two children at home. They were homeschooled. And Ronald, as he was known in the family, was keen pupil. She taught him a great deal of botany and awakened him to enjoy, uh, the enjoyment of, uh, of the look and feel of plants. Young Tolkien liked to draw landscapes and trees, but his favorite lessons were those concerning languages. And his mother taught him um, Latin very early. Tolkien could read by the age of four and could write fluently. Soon afterward, his mother allowed him to read many books. He disliked Treasure Island and the Pied Piper, um, and thought Alice, Alice in Wonderland, and he, and he, um, he thought Alice in Wonderland and Lewis Carroll by Lewis Carroll was amusing but disturbing. He liked stories about Red Indians, Native Americans that is, and the works of fantasy by George MacDonald. In addition, the fairy books of Andrew Lang were particularly important to him, and their influence is apparent in some of his later writings. So you see, okay, Maple Tolkien was received into the Roman Catholic Church in 1900, and despite by uh, protest by her families, which were, of course, I uh, think they were Baptists, not um, Methodists, as I thought, which stopped all financial assistance to her. Wow, they cut her off because of that in 1904. When J.R. Tolkien was 12, his mother died of diabetes at a, uh, in, in the cottage in Redno, which she was renting. She was then 
about 34 years of age, so very young, about as old as a person with diabetes uh, one type 1 could survive without treatment. Insulin would not be discovered until 1921. Two decades later, nine years after her, her death, Tolkien wrote, My own dear mother was a martyr, indeed, and it is not to everybody that God grants so easy way to his great gifts as, as he did, to, to Hillary and myself, giving us a mother who killed herself with labor and trouble to ensure us keeping the faith. So you see how that affected him and how that basic grounded him into his into Catholicism. She, I mean, I read other stories that she was really, really very passionate about the Christian faith and she wanted to know, you know, she didn't really, she wasn't satisfied with Protestantism. And she herself must have been reading a lot, studying a lot, looking into Catholicism. She must have, who knows the people she spoke with that we'll never know about, but nuns, priests, she must have met missionaries, uh, and she must have been reading a lot of books about the Christian faith and everything. It's very fascinating. Maybe she even might have read the writings of, um, of uh, you know, Bishop, um, no, Cardinal John Henry Newman. John Henry Newman himself must have, might have been a great influence, and even maybe the writings of uh, G.K. Chesterton. Before her death, Maple uh, assigned guardianship of her sons to a close friend, Father Francis Xavier Morgan of the Birmingham Oratory, who was assigned to bring them up as good Catholics. In, in a 1965 letter to his son, Michael Tolkien, recalled the influence of the man whom he always called Father Francis. He was an uh, upper-class Welsh uh, Spaniard uh, Tory and seemed to, to some just a pottering old gossip. He was, and he seemed uh, he seemed to some just a um, pottering old gossip. Sorry, repeating. He was, and he was not. I first learned charity and forgiveness from him, and in the light of it, it pierced even the liberal darkness out of which I came, knowing more about Bloody Mary. Than the, the, uh, than the mother of Jesus, who was never mentioned except as an object of wicked worship by the Romanists. <laughs> After his mother, mother's death, Tolkien grew up in Edibast, uh, Edbaston, area of Birmingham, and attended King Edward's School, Birmingham, later St. Philip's School. In 1903, he won a foundation scholarship and returned to King Edward's. All right, so he, he, you know, his mother wanted to assure him, and she had him raised by this guardian, a priest. And um, I can't believe, I mean, obviously it could not have been easy. I mean, back then in England, there was a lot of anti-Catholicism. There was a lot of anti-Catholicism here in America. And as we can see, I mean, he really, you know, it, was a, it must have been a struggle, but also he gained a great education. Um, his mother will never know exactly how much or what influences or why, but she, her Catholic, uh, her conversion was, uh, was a very big thing. I mean, think about it to lose your mother at such a young age, her family cut off all financial support because of her conversion. 
And it basically grounded him more into his Catholicism, to his to his Catholic faith. Fascinating. Okay, so it was while in his early teens he had his first encounter with constructed languages, something called Anna Anamilic. Something uh, which was invented, an invention of his cousins, some cousins of his, Mary and Marjorie. Um, he was studying Latin and Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, at the time. But of course, uh, sometime at that time, Tolkien himself invented a new and more complex language called Navbosh. <laughs> The next constructed language he came to work with was Nephren and would be his own creation. Tolkien learned Esperanto uh, sometime before 1909, around 10th of June in 1909, he composed the Book of Foxbrook, a 16-page notebook where the earlier examples of one of his, of his invented alphabets appear. Uh, short text in his net notebook or written it in Esperanto. Okay. Um, in 1911, while they were at King Edward School, Tolkien and, his, and three friends, Rob Gilson, Jeffrey Bach Smith, Bach Smith, and Christopher Weissman formed a semi-secret society they called the TSBS. The initials stood for Tea Club and Bo uh, Bavarian Society alluding to their fountainess for drinking tea in Barrow store near the school and secretly secretly in school library. After leaving school, the membership stayed in touch and in December 1914, they held a council in London at Weissman's home. For Tolkien, the result of this meeting was a strong dedication to writing poetry. In 1911, Tolkien went on a summer holiday in Switzerland a trip that he recollected vividly in in 1968 letter, noting noting that Bilbo's journey across the misty mountains, including the 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 um the glissade down in slithering stones in in the pine woods, is directly based on his adventure, uh, as the party uh party of twelve hiked from uh intercane uh intercane to Lethor. Uh, Letter Brunian on the camp in the Morians beyond Morin. Fifty-seven years later, Tolkien remembered his uh, his regret at leaving the view of the eternal snows of Jungfu uh, in Sub, Sub, uh, Silphorn, getting these names butchered, the Sil the Sil the Silverton of my dreams. They went across the Klein, the Klein. Um, these are names I can't pronounce here, and across the uh, across the Gimsel Pass through the upper uh, Vales to Brig and on to the uh, glacier in uh, Zimmermat. In October of the same year, Tolkien began studying um, in, at Oxford. He initially read classics, but changed his course in 1913 to English language and literature, graduating in 1915 with first-class honors. Among his tutors at Oxford was Joseph Wright, who, who's the prime 
premier of Gothic languages and in Spartoken as a schoolboy. Okay, so he had a school trip to the Swiss Alps, to Switzerland, which he recollected in the 1968 letter, and which he related to Bilbo crossing over the misty mountains of the mountains and that story incident Bilbo, Bilbo had with the dwarves, with the giants, and um, it, uh, and of course he he included it in his writings in the Fellowship, the Misty Mountains, when they went across, which was uh, they were trying to go across and they had to go to Moria. Um, this was something that he he put into his his work. So a lot of it was real life experiences. Uh, real life inspirations, uh, life uh, events that uh, he put into his work. Like all writers, these were the events he remembered and they, they became part of him. Um, this is something I'm interested in doing myself. I'm interested in writing something. So, um, and I think it's true that we do write about experiences and stories and events and stuff like that that inspire us. Things that I think play a big role to us is very good. Um very interesting so all right so now he of course he he uh the age of 16 Tolkien met edith mary bratt she would become his future wife um uh his father uh i mean so the his guardian the priest uh father morgan's considered altogether unfortunate because i think he he felt she was a protestant by the way she wasn't catholic uh, and I, you know, probably the, the maybe the priest took a wrong approach, which I think caused a strain on their on the relationship. Okay, so so let's see here. Later on, of course, I think they think their relationship grew more serious. When well, we'll get to that, but she was, um, I think, her family was strongly uh, against her friendship or her conversion to Catholicism. So it basically. Um, you know, had a, a, I mean, you know, it, it played a role, let's say, put it this way. There was a lot going on, and I think they were young and they were in love, and I think nobody knew at the time knew how to handle it. So let's go on here. <clears throat> and then, of course, his years in the British Army. But I'm um, more interested here, let's see. Okay, so then he experienced uh, 1916, the Battle of the Somes in in July nineteen sixteen between um, which was World War One. His his experiences in World War One will play a big role in the uh, the the um, the you know those bodies in the swamps and the in the marshes looking up bodies of elves and men. It was a because of the big war that 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 played a big part in his life. Um. Okay, so it was here. He got he he got wounded, and I think he got exposed to some mustard gas or something. And we, and Master Tolkien, spent the remainder of the war uh, alternating between hospitals and garrison duties, being deemed medically unfit for general service. During his recovery in a cottage in Little Haywood, uh, Stratfordshire, he began to work on what he called. The Book of Lost Tales, beginning with the fall of Gundolin. Lost Tales represented Tolkien's attempt to create a mythology for England, a project which would which he would abandon without ever in completing. 
Throughout 1970-1918, his illness kept recurring, but he had recovered enough to do home service at various camps. It was at this time that Edith bore their first child, so they they were married already. And uh, John Francis Rawl Tolkien, in, uh, in 1941 letter, Tolkien described his son John as conceived and carried during the star, uh, starvation year of 1917 and the great U-boat campaign around about the Battle of uh, Cambria, when in the end of the war seemed as far off as it, it, do, as it does now. Tolkien was promoted to the temp, uh, temporary work at uh, as, as a lieutenant in January, January 6, 1918, when he was stationed at Kingston upon, upon Hull. He and Edith went walking in the woods and nearby uh, ruse, and Edith began to dance for him in a clearing, in a clearing among the flowering hemlock. After his wife's death, uh, his wife after his wife death in 1971, Tolkien remembered, "I never called Edith Luthien, but she was the source of the story, that in time became the chief part of the Silmarillion. It was." It was first conceived in a small woodland glade filled with hemlocks at Roos in Yorkshire, where I was for a brief time in command of an outpost of Hamburg Garrison in 1917, and she was able to live with me for a while. In those days, her hair was raven, her skin clear, her eyes bright, brighter than you have seen them, and she could sing and dance, but the story has gone crooked and i am left and i cannot plead before the inexorable mandos <laughs> mandos was like one of his uh his his angelic beings uh that he um <clears throat> created the the sort of took part uh, to guard the earth i think he was a king a king and lord among the angelic beings that were set up so uh so you see here, he then, of course, in 1920s, he undertook the translation of Beowulf. After the war was over, World War I, uh, he finished in 1926, but did not publish it. It was finally edited by his son and published in, uh, in 2014, within 40 years after Tolkien's death. It's sad. He should, I think he, you know, he should have published these things earlier. Uh... It was basically called Be uh, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, which had a lasting influence on Beowulf research. Uh, and Beowulf criticism, because, you know, he, I think he was very much, he, he knew that, that old English uh, Beowulf uh, manuscript very well. Uh, uh, he says here, let me see, let me just read a little bit. It, it was some of the earliest article were recognized as a turning point in Beowulf criticism, noting that Tolkien established the pr uh, primacy of the poetic nature of the work as opposed to its purely linguistic element. At the time, the consensus by scholarship 
basically approached Beowulf for dealing with childish battles, monsters, rather than realistic tribal warfare. Tolkien argued that the author of Beowulf was addressing human destiny in general, not as eliminated by particular tribal politics, and therefore the monster was essential to the poem, whereas Beowulf does not deal with specific tribal struggles as at as at Finsburg, Tolkien argued firmly against reading in fantastic elements in the essay. Tolkien also revealed how highly he regarded Beowulf. Beowulf is among my most valued sources. The influence may be seen throughout his Middle-earth legendarium. So he's basically, he feels that people are just trying to find different kind of stupid meanings, like trying to deconstruct a book. That's the thing that a lot of scholars love to do now. There's a thing of deconstructing the book, trying to find um, all kinds of other sources. Instead of looking at it, like he says, human destiny. What what exactly does this, did the story mean to the people back then? What it... What did it what did it represent to them when they heard the story being being read to them or being recalled to them? What does it mean when someone performed the story? It represented something to do with, with human destiny and battle. All right. Rather than they're trying to deconstruct it to try to look for hidden meanings and hidden elements. That's not how he saw it. He saw it as it dealt with what it meant. It has nothing to do with like um like he says here, uh, Tolkien argued that this author Beowulf was addressing human destiny in general, not as limited by particular tribal politics. In other words, they're just trying to figure out this, the political means or the social anthropological stuff. Tolkien just saw it as a beautiful story about someone facing up to the, against their fears, facing up, up against destiny. Uh, you know, looking at it from, you know, you know, like, like we all, we all have to face our destiny. We all have to face our fears. Tolkien saw it as the monster was, it was an important element to, uh, facing destiny. It made sense. Okay. So, um, Tolkien began his, um, it was at Humbry Carpenter, Tolkien began his series of lectures on Beowulf in a most striking way, entering the room, silently fixing the audience with a look, and suddenly declaiming in Old English, opening the lines of the poem, starting with a great cry of, oh, it was a dramatic, imp uh, a very impressive Anglo-Saxon, uh, he, he was acting like an Anglo-Saxon bard. He would go in, and then suddenly, silently, he would look at the audience and then begin the opening lines to give the people exactly what, how it was done in the time when the, when the poem was written or uh, came to be born. It was, it was dramatic. Uh, he did it like a dramatic Anglo-Saxon bard in a meat hall and made the students realize that Beaver was not just a set text, but a powerful piece of dramatic poetry. Okay, uh, decades later, W.H. Arden wrote to his former professor thanking him for the unforgettable experience of hearing him recite Beowulf and stating the voice was the voice of Gandalf. <laughs> so you see, 
That's what he wanted. He wanted them to understand how it was performed and how it sounded. It possibly could have sounded to its original audience. That's the kind of professor he was. He wasn't going to go into this modern deconstructive stuff, which was unfortunate. That's what a lot of people do today. They want to find out the the hidden meaning, what was what was the hidden message of it, uh, what was the politics behind it, and he felt that they're missing the point. He they, they were missing the point. That's why the book, his version of Beowulf, when he wrote the essay, was Beowulf, the critics and the monster, the monster. And so the critics were the, really the enemy. He's saying, you guys are missing the whole point. You're missing the drama, the poetry, the art of it. And all they're focusing on was the anthropology. And that's not what, and that's not what he cared about. He cared about only what the, what the poetry meant. Man and destiny facing their fears. Very interesting. And the monster was that element. So now we get to the part of his life. Um, uh, the Second World War. And Tolkien was e earmarked as a code breaker. I didn't know this. In January 1939, he was asked to serve in the uh, cryptographic department of the Foreign Affair, uh, Foreign Office in the event of national emergency. Beginning uh, in the 27th of March, he took an instructional course at the London uh, headquarters of the government code and, and, and um, school. He was informed in October that his service would not be required. <laughs> well, it was all for nothing. Wow. He could have probably gotten paid. In 1945, Tolkien moved to, to Merton College, Oxford becoming the Merton Professor of English Language and Literature, in which post he remained until his retirement in 1959. He served as an external examiner of, for University College uh, for many years. In 1954, Tolkien received an honorary degree from the National University of Ireland, which University College Gal Galloway was an a, a a, um, a constant college. Okay, well, anyway, Tolkien completed the uh, completed the Lord of the Rings in 1948, close to a decade after his first sketches. Wow. Family. Uh, the Tolkien's had four children: John Francis Royal Tolkien, born uh, November seventh, seventeenth, nineteen seventeen. And then, um, okay, he passed away uh, January 22nd, 2003. Michael Hillary Rawl Tolkien, born October 22nd, 1920. He passed uh, 19, uh, 27, 19, February 1984. Christopher John Raul Tolkien, 21st November, 1924. He passed away January 16th, 2020. And Priscilla Mary Ann Royal Tolkien, born June 18, 1929. She passed away February 28, 2022. Tolkien was, was a very devoted to his children and sent them illustrated letters from Father Christmas. 
This is something he did every year, and it's actually printed as a book. When they were young, okay, he, he did that. His retirement, okay, during his life in retirement, uh, from, from 1959 up to his death in 1970, Tolkien received... Uh, a public increasing public attention and literary fame. In nineteen sixty one his friend C. S. Lewis even nominated him for a Nobel Prize in Literature. The sales of his book were so profitable that he regretted that he had not chosen early retirement. Uh, in nineteen seventy two letter he deplored having become a cult figure, but admitted that even the nose of a very um, um, modest idol cannot remain entirely untickled by the sweet smell of in, uh, of incense. <laughs> Fan attention became so intense that Tolkien had to take his phone number out of public directory. <clears throat> Eventually, he and Edith moved to Bournemouth, which was then a seaside resort. Uh, patronized by the British upper middle class, Tolkien's status as the best-selling author gave them easy entry into polite society. But Tolkien deeply missed the company of his fellow inklings. Edith, however, was overjoyed to step into role of a society hostess, which had been the reason, uh, reason that Tolkien selected Burnmouth in the first place. The genuine and deep affection between Ronald and Edith was demonstrated by their care about uh, the other's health. In details like wrapping presents in the generous way, he gave up his life at Oxford so she could retire to Burnmouth in her, and in her pride in his becoming a famous author. They were tied together too by the love of their children and grandchildren. So that's great. It's great to hear that he, he enjoyed the success of his work. In his retirement, Tolkien was consulted and translated the Jerusalem Bible, published in 1966. He was initially assigned a larger portion to translate, but due to other commitments, only managed uh, to offer some criticism of the contributors and a translation of the book of Jonah and Job, actually. He did translate Job. In his final years, uh, the final years. Edith died in 1929. I mean, sorry, in, in November 29, 1971, at the age of 82, Ronald returned to Oxford where Martin College and gave him a convenient rooms near the high streets. He missed Edith, but enjoyed being back in the city. Tolkien was made a commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1972, New Year's Honor, and received the insignia and order of Buckingham Palace on 28 March 1972. In the same year, Oxford University gave him an honorary doctorate of letters. He had the name Luthien engraved on Edith's tombstone. When Tolkien died in uh, 21 months uh, later, in in the second September nineteen seventy three, from a bleeding ulcer and chest infection at the age of eighty one, he was buried in the same grave with with Baron added to his name. Tolkien will be, Tolkien will, will Tolkien's will was proven, 
uh, on 20 December 1973 when his estate was valued. Um, wow, I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I can't, I, I, uh, 190, so I guess 577 equivalent, I guess one, millions of dollars because of his book sales. I mean, let's put it this way. <laughs> he didn't, <clears throat> sorry, he suffered a lot of financial problems. He didn't get paid that well as a professor. And suddenly these, the success of these books came later on. And I guess it benefited his children. And that's great. Um, <laughs> that's really good. Now, Tolkien's Catholicism, this is an important part here, was a significant factor in C.S. Lewis's conversion from atheism to Christianity. Although Tolkien was dismayed that Lewis chose to join the Church of England, he once wrote to, uh, to um, one of his daughters, who wished to know the purpose of his life, that it was to increase, to increase according to our capacity, our knowledge of God, by all the means we have, and to be moved by it, to praise and thanks. He had special devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, writing to his son Michael that in the Blessed Sacrament you will find rom romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth. And more than that, according to accordingly encourage frequent reception of Holy Communion, again writing to his son Michael that the only cure for sagging, fainting faith is communion. He believed that Catholic Church to be the true most all, the true most of all because of the pride of place and honor which he holds the Blessed Sacrament. In the last year of his life, Tolkien res res uh, resisted liturgical changes implemented after the Second Vatican Council, especially the use of English for liturgy. He continued to make responses in Latin loudly, ignoring the rest of the congregation. It's sad. I have to agree because you know it it did cause a lot of rift, a lot of strain. Especially, I I always feel that Catholicism has been strained, especially when liturgical changes, uh, in a sense because it made everybody um, that unity that Latin held only when it was taken away created all these ethnic masses, these. Uh, Ethnic masses, in a sense that we're like now you have like a Spanish mass, you have a Chinese mass, you have a, a Latin mass, an Italian. Uh, everybody's concerned in their own languages, and no one, uh, in a sense, there's no unity anymore. Which is what the Catholic Church is supposed to do. It was supposed to be united. Uh, Tolkien, uh, Tolkien's fantasy writings have have often been accused of embodying outmoded attitude to race. However, scholars have noted that he was influenced by Victorian attitude to race and to a literary tradition of monsters, that he was anti-racist both in peacetime and during the, the two world wars. With the, um, with the late 19th century background of eugenics and fear of moral decline, some critics saw the mention of race mixing in the Lord of the Rings as embodying scientific racism. Others, I mean, people are going to always going to find this. That's, that's always been a problem. 
I think that's a big. That's always going to be something that people are going to now. They're, they're going to try to do that. They're going to look at oh how he, what the orcs symbolize, or the dwarves, or the hobbits, or uh, men of the west. I mean, he remember he was focusing. He was his main influence was Anglo-Saxon, uh, the sagas, and. You could say he was influenced by the Victorian culture of his time. You could say that. But I think people, he was not a racist. I don't believe he was a racist. He was definitely a man of his time. How could he not be? But I think the problem is, is that all these woke, the woke crowd today, they're going to look for racism. And if they can't find it, they're going to create it. Okay. And they're going to create their own, they're going to impose their own sexual views. They're going to impose their own ideology because it's not about story for them. It's about their ideology comes first. They can't create their own stories. So they're going to hijack an established story because they can't write and they can't tell a story. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to take his work and they're going to use it for their ideology. That's why I think it's going to happen with the, with the Amazon's, the rings of power. Uh, you know, it's just, that's just the way it is. That's just the way they are. They're going to do that. Um, okay. So going now to his, uh, writings, the, the Lord of the Rings and similar in drew on wily array of influence, including, uh, his love for languages. It's definitely his Christianity, um, was definitely in it. Um, you know, he and his love for Beowulf, uh, his love for Germanic, Celtic, Finnish and Greek languages and mythology and their, and their mythology that came with it. Commerces have attempted to identify many literary typological uh, characteristics and places. Um, definitely, he had a lot, a lot in it. And I think um, this one can't. Ignore that. Okay, okay. Example, I mentioned Beowulf, the monsters and the critics. And his, this was an academic work by Tolkien. This was very much a, a part of it. You can see it in the Rohan, the men of the Mark, uh, which was, you know, the, the, the writers of Rohan. The Mead Hall, the drinking hall, was right, out, was right out of Beowulf. You can see it in there. His love for fairy stories, uh, Andrew Lang's, uh, and um, and there was all kinds of stuff. He loved folklore and everything. It all played a part. His love for fairy tales, his essays on fairy tales is very important. Um, his, you know, again, children's books, his father Christmas, uh, Rover Random uh, about a dog, uh, Leaf by Niggle, Tree and Leaf by Niggle, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, Smith and Wooden, and Farmer Giles and Ham. And also he uh, he also has something with uh, the, what do you call it, The Green Knight. He also did a, a, a translation on that one, which is, a, they made it, recently they made it into a movie, not his, but it was really a, a, a famous poem, a story, The Green Knight. And of course, you know, he has The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Similarian. This is a part I think where this 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 one is going to play some part. Tolkien wrote a brief sketch of the mythology, which in included tales of Beren and Luthien uh, and Turin, at, at, and that sketch 
eventually evolve uh, into the Quanta Similarian, an epic history that Tolkien started three, time, uh, three times but never published. Tolkien desperately hoped to publish it along with The Lord of the Rings, but publishers, both Alan and Owen, uh, declined when printing costs were very high in 1950s Britain, requiring The Lord of the Rings to be published in three volumes. The story of this continuous redrafting is told in the posthumous series The History of Middle-Earth uh, by his son Christopher Tolkien. Uh, the Fall of Numenor, which was inspired by the legends of Atlantis. Tolkien appointed his son Christopher to be the literary executor and with with, with assistance from uh, several people. Uh, they organized some of his material into a single coherent volume published as a Similarian in 1977. It, uh, it received an award for best-selling novel in 1978. Then is the unfinished tales of Middle Earth. Uh, again, his son Christopher Tolkien was involved in it. He basically um, took together uh, between the years of 1983 and 1996, he published large amounts of remaining unpublished material together with notes and extensive commentary in a series of 12 volumes called The History of Middle Earth. 12 volumes, wow. The, uh, the series of 12 volumes called History of Middle-Earth, they contain unfinished, abandoned, alternative, and outright contradictory accounts since they were always a work in progress for Tolkien. He only rarely settled on definitive versions for any of the stories. There's not a complete consistency between The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, the two most closely related works, because Tolkien never fully integrated all their tra traditions into each other. He commented in 1960 while editing The Hobbit for a third edition that he would have preferred to write the book completely because of the style of its prose. Well, you see, he had a lot, I mean, he, you know, he went through changes and drafts like any, any writer and he had to figure out, eventually he figured out which it settled. I mean, the original version of The Hobbit uh, he changed it later on. The original version was that Gollum gave the ring up. It, you know, he gave the ring up to Bilbo Baggins. Later on, when he was writing the, the Lord of the Rings, he realized that the ring itself became an object of evil, an object uh, that was going to be the the MacGuffin of the whole thing. MacGuffin, meaning the object that would be the, the attention, to, to, the, the purpose to destroy it, he went back and redrafted that scene, had to change some scenes that, Gull, that Bilbo stole the ring, took the ring, like he found it and he, he basically, uh, or the ring wanted to be found and he just didn't tell the, uh, uh, Gollum or the ring made him lie. Because one thing the, was that Bilbo gave different versions of how he found the ring because the ring was caught, was making him lie. And he never, and he had to later on admit the truth to Gandalf. So what he wrote in his so-called Darren back again story was not the real story. Bilbo lied. The ring, you know, he, he basically took it and he didn't tell Gollum what he had in his pocket. 
And um, he used, he didn't tell anybody about the ring. And when he later on, the ring, it turns out he had a magic ring. He didn't tell anyone the truth of how he got it. So that's a, that, that's something that was, that became an important part of the, the, the story. He had to change it. He had to basically show that the ring was trying to get back to Sauron. So it was very interesting. You know, you see here, he had a very interesting career and he had, um, he never really sought, uh, wanted to become a fantasy writer, but he was writing this through the years. And it's wonderful that he enjoyed um, the rewards of it, the rewards of the whole thing. And it's too bad he didn't start writing earlier. He probably would have enjoyed it better. I mean, probably he, you know, I'm sure, I know he loved being a, la a professor of languages, but definitely paid off to be a fantasy writer right than that but it's too bad he could have written more stories and too bad we didn't get more hobbit stories like you know sh tales of the shire or something like that it would have been great all right so let's move on to the article okay so this is crisis magazine a catholic publication um amazon's tolkien it's by ben reinhardt february 16th 2022 Okay, so translate Tolkien to film has always been a ticklish business. The first attempt, uh, the first attempt to bring the Lord of the Rings to the screen in the late 1950s, so dismayed Tolkien that he wrote a page-by-page -page correction of this extreme silliness and incompetence of the screenwriter. The last line of his final letter on the subject offers a fitting summary of the whole affair. The Lord of the Rings cannot be garbled like that. Similar, uh, similarly, and despite the movie's massive critical and financial success, Tolkien's son, Christopher Tolkien, had little positive to say about the original Peter Jackson trilogy. Jackson had eviscerated the book by making it into an action movie for young people aged 15 to 25 and, uh, and absorbed The Lord of the Rings into the absurdity of our time. And of course, the less said about the Hobbit trilogy, the better. <clears throat> well, it, it, you know, it, it, it makes sense because there's so much that was left out of the series, the the original Jackson movies. They're great, but there was a lot left out. And I recently saw a YouTube video where a Tolkien scholar, this guy, he's an expert in Tolkien, said that if you really if you really wanted to do a very good um adaptation, the best thing was not on screen. It would have been on TV. It would have been on uh, the uh, like like the Game of Thrones was done for the last couple of years, especially if you really put a lot of money into it, a lot of time. You would have gotten Tom Bombadil. You would have made there would have been a lot of things in this in in the series that you could have accomplished. But that's you know that's not what happened. And people have to remember that adaptation often means editing out certain things, and of course. Um, the Aragon on screen was not the Aragon in the books. The Aragon in the books was determined, 
he knew what his destiny is. He knew what he had to do. The Aragon they put on screen was someone who was conflicted. Again, this whole conflicting hero, it became a very popular thing in modern culture. The hero who struggled and doubted and wondered if he could really do this. That's that's the way Jackson, because they had to do it. And of course, there was that scene where Arwen was saving Bilbo after he got stabbed by the ring wreath and he got poisoned by uh, by the sword of the ring wreath. She had to take him down, take him back to Rivendale to her father Elrond to heal him. She wasn't supposed to be in that scene. That scene was another elf. And, but they had, because Tolkien didn't really put a lot of female roles. There's a lot of male roles in the, in the book. And that's not because he didn't, he didn't like female roles. He had Galadriel. He did create Arwen. But what happened was, is that Jackson felt, and I understand it, when you have, when you're doing something like this for a modern audience, you know the females, the the female owners is going to be left out and says, "Is there any women in this in this in this in this story?" That's how they're going to think. But these are people who didn't read the books. You see, there's a difference with the Lord of the Ring film fan between a Lord of the Ring devotee to the literature. There's, that's two different Lord of the Rings uh, fans, you could say. People lover of literature don't question Tolkien's um, his 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 cultural views. They don't look at him as a racist. They don't look at him from uh, what do you call it uh, from the from the so-called um, advocates or whatever you call it. Uh, you know. Uh, so-called rights or racial rights and stuff like that. That's not, that's not what they're looking at. They look at, they, they understand his literature. They understand his culture. They understand his religion. They understand his mythology. They understand his theology. They understand his philosophy. That's totally different. Okay. You know, advocates and stuff like that. They don't, they don't read literature. They, they, they want to hijack culture and art and they want to basically hijack it because they want the spotlight put on their cause and they don't care about the literature they don't they're not they're not going to read that and if and if they did read it they're going to read it with prejudice which is ironic because they're always looking for prejudice but they're the ones who have the biggest prejudice <clears throat> that's just the way they are they're all about sexuality they're all about uh racial equality they're all about uh, they're all about destroying the white supremacy. They're looking for white supremacy everywhere they could find it. They'll look at, you know, the, you know, if they could look at the, the, the bottom of their shoes, they'll look for white supremacy. If they look at the food, they'll see white supremacy. They'll see white supremacy everywhere because that's their, their main goal is, it's just, they have a whole different, their ideology. So, um, Going back here, um, what we're saying here, okay, now we go pick up after the Hobbit trilogy. But records are made to be broken, they say, and it seems like Amazon Studios, the Ring of Power series, will soon surpass Peter Jackson's Battle of the Five Armies as the worst vandalism of Tolkien ever committed to film. The earliest reports on the series were discouraging enough. Practically from the moment the project was announced, ominous portents began to escape from Amazon Studios like flames shooting from Mount Doom. Perfect way of 
of of uh, alluding using the, the metaphor here. The showrunners originally brought Tom Shibby. Tom Shibby is a, is a Tolkien scholar. He's also a Anglo-Saxon into Anglo-Saxon and Norman culture uh, historian. Tom uh, Shibby, his last name S H I P P E Y, Anglo-Saxonist, medievalist, one of the preeminent Tolkien scholars of his generation in to serve as a consultant. He parted ways with sh- with the show by April of 2020. Two service writers were hired to pen the sprawling se- series, even though neither had a single IMDb crit- credit to their names. The studio hired intimacy coaches to help prepare actors for nude scenes. <laughs> Remember, Jeff Bezos said, I want my Game of Thrones. And supposedly the rumor has it that he's a big Tolkien reader, which I, which is kind of funny that, because really people often compare him to Smog, Smog the uh, the dragon, the hoarder of gold and everything. The richest, he's a rich man. And Amazon is only what the Roman Empire would have dreamed of being. They say that. I've heard people say that. I mean, it was Dr. Steve Turley, and Turley Talk said that the 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 Amazon is what the Roman Empire dreamed of becoming. Their power, the 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 their the wealth and the the continents that they're spreading out is only what they dreamed of. All right. So why why nude scenes? Well, because they're going to do the fall of Numenor, and they're going to probably put in a lot of. They need to put sex in, right? Because that's uh, the Game of Thrones had nudity and rape constantly, almost every episode. Um, now Vanity Fair has given readers their first glimpse behind the scenes of the series, and it looks very much as though fans' worst fears will soon be realized. But before considering the full range of catastrophic decisions made by the showrunners, let us pause to consider one controversial decision that may actually be defended. The introduction of characters never named or imagined by Tolkien. Granted, the adventure new characters may turn out to be a problem, in fact, but it but need not be on principle. It is the nature of a great tale. The legend of Arthur or the tale of Troy to inspire imitators, uh, contunators, and even, in a sense, collaborators. The Lord of the Rings is no exception to this rule, a fact that Tolkien predicted and at one point seems to have endorsed. As he developed his mythology, he intended to draw some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched during his, so would leave scope for other minds and other and hands wielding paint and music and drama these other minds and hands would bring the sketched tales to full life the question then is not whether the new work adheres to Tolkien in every detail Tolkien himself licensed some innovation the question is whether the innovators have the wisdom to understand Tolkien's vision, the humility to be guided by it, and the creative skill to bring it to life. In short, the question is whether the new work will be worthy of being accepted as part of some organic, authentic 
post-Tolkien canon or are being rejected as the product of clumsy, exploitive cynicism. All signs point to the latter. The problem that has generated the most online controversy, though it is hardly the most serious, is Amazon's commitment to diversifying the Middle Earth. It felt only natural to us. This is the part that got everybody, says the show's executive producer, that an adaptation of Tolkien's work would reflect what the world will actually look like. What in the world does that mean? The world will actually look like. But their world is not Tolkien's world. As, an, as any serious reader of Tolkien knows, he intended his Middle Earth to provide mythology for England. Okay, that's what was his biggest thing, a mythology for England. That was originally uh, one of his um, his original complaints were because he felt that um, there weren't enough traditional myths of the land, that a lot of it was lost because of you can say the uh, the Roman invasion, the uh, Saxon invasion, the Norman invasion. You know, Roman ancient Rome's came in, and then you had the the um, the Saxons coming in, and and a lot of and then there was the the stories from uh, the, the the invasion from the Normans from France. Uh, which actually the name Normans means Northmen because the the Viking the the early Vikings uh, from the north the Germanic invasion went to France and they became known as Normen the area was Normandy meaning the the land it became the the territory of the Northmen that's what it all means and the sa the word we get Saxons those who get you know you heard the word we get sacked that's where it came from it the term was. Um, they, they sacked England, basically they sacked Britain, they ripped the country apart and they settled and these, all these different invasions probably destroyed the ancient mythology, wiped away the, 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 the stories that would have survived that you can get from other countries that didn't, that England, England didn't survive it. And so he felt that a lot of the stuff was lost. He had a love for for mythology. He had a love for for ancient stories because he felt it's it's it told you about the culture and the lands. And um, that's true. But like for example, um, the King Arthur story. As much as he loves it, he felt that the original story of Arthur was lost because of the different cultures that built on it. You can tell uh, the Christian religion came later and that, you know, he has, you know, it became Christianized. Of course, it probably, it probably evolved around the early Christian era and the fall of the Roman Empire. But he also felt there were some other stories in it that influenced it that were lost, that lost in time. So he wanted to try to create a mythology and that he's, he realizes was almost was absolutely almost impossible. But he took elements, uh, people living in shires, the cultures, the villages. He loved them. And so the hobbits represented shire dwellers. 
those beautiful villages out in the country away from the cities um then he borrowed he borrowed from uh the Viking Beowulf, he borrowed from Celtic, he borrowed from other fairy stories, and he built the Lord of the Rings, as, you know, we, as we said later. But, you know, he said that this whole thing of trying to build a mythology, yeah, he did in some cases. The greatest, one of the greatest uh, stuff he gave England, <clears throat> you know, people in England are proud of it. Some people uh, were disappointed that they didn't film it in England, the, the, the three. But the thing is, the country went through so many changes that it was impossible to get with, uh, to get the landscape you needed without, um, without the modern world interfering. And New Zealand was the perfect place to do it. You know, you could, you know, it was just perfect. It had all, it had, it had the elements that you needed and it worked well. It, it actually worked well. Did it, I mean, you know, you don't get tours going to England for it. You're going to have them going to New Zealand because they people want to see it. They actually preserved the, the Shire bag end and everything. Uh, it became a big tourist attraction. Okay. So he says here, uh, going back to it, the work went, as he explained to Milton Waldman to uh, to be redolent of uh, of our air, that is the cli- the climate and soil, the climate and soil of Northwest, meaning Britain, and the hither parts of Europe, that is arguably the primary aesthetic aim of Tolkien's work. That the studio is willing to discard it in favor of their own half understood commitments to contemporary identity politi- uh, politics does not abode well for their for um for their decisions the this imperative stu, uh, studio knows bet best attitude can also be seen in the show's approach to tolkien's chronology tolkien laid out millennia of middle earth history with meticulous care thousands of pages that fill the history of middle earth volumes are are a testament to its efforts largely because of the of the of this obsession with detail tolkien's subcreation is invested with much of the layered depths texture and contours of primary creation his characters move in a world fully furnished with its own history folklore and myth and so the imaginary world feels authentically real yeah it does Amazon writers, however, will have none of this. In an act of shocking literary violence, they compress over 3,000 years of Tolkien's imagined history into several year span. The story they tell features events from the beginning, middle, and end of the Second Age, the aftermath of the War of Wrath, the forging of the Rings of Power, and Isidore, and the fall of Numenor, all ransacked from their proper timelines and all compressed into a single point in time. That's that's not good. You see, that shows you that they really they just want the attention. They want the the title. I mean, think about it, Lord of the Rings, the Ring of Power. So you gotta call the Ring Lord of the Rings and Ring. I mean, that's that shows you how they didn't really put much thought to it. One sympathizes with the writers, at least, to some degree. Here, at least, they can offer some artistic reason for their actions. 
There really is no way to present a millennial spinning history in a, in a television miniseries, and perhaps the radical comprehension of the narrative will allow them to tell an engaging story, but whatever story they tell, it will not be Tolkien. His events will be falsified, the characters distorted, and the fundamental relationship destroyed. And if the writers cannot adapt the book to screen without distorting it beyond recognition, it would have been much better not to adapt it at all. He's right about that. They just why not just go and try to create your own your own fantasy series? But there but there remains yet a greater problem. It looks very much as though Amazon Studios' impatient scorn for Tolkien's moral vision runs every bit as deep as their disregard for his aesthetics and history. The Lord of the Rings was Tolkien's famous noted a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Tolkien himself is one of the great orderly, uh, orderly authors of human history. The screenwriters, by contrast, seem to be thoroughly steeped in the chaos of squalor of our own age, which rejoice in the deconstruction of traditional morality, the breaking of taboos, and the degradation of what previous ages held noble and sacred. In our, in our modernized Middle Earth, the wise and gracious Aaron becomes a politically ambitious young leader. Galadriel, a warrior princess, Rhine maiden, and goodness knows what else, one of the new characters introduced is a single mother and a healer. She has a forbidden romance with yet another new character. It is possible that the writers could not handle such themes with something like Tolkien's delicate touch and clear moral vision. I won't be holding my breath. Exactly. So everything has has to be deconstructed. They don't understand his Catholicism. You really do have to understand it. I mean, his love for... Okay, basically what, what the Similarian begins with, it begins with the creation of the world, the creation of of the universe. And the main character, Tolkien, the way Tolkien decides to, he gives God a new name, he calls him Aru Aluvatar. And he created the universe and he created everything. Then he created the um, the Ainur, or the uh, there's a name another name for them. Basically, they're angelic beings. And how did Aru Aluvatar basically did? He created the universe through singing. He sung the universe into existence. Some say the Jews believe that God did the same thing; that He sung the universe into existence. You know. And then he sung into existence the Arnur, the uh, the angelic beings. And then there was a choir. And it, you, like you go into Psalms, all the sons of God uh, are giving praise. They're singing praise for the creation of the universe. And that's basically it. So Tolkien took that and he just basically, he he. he he created it, his legendarium, his own mythology. He took God and he created these beings and he gave them, of course, new names. And he's he, obviously he's going to add things to it in his own because remember, he's he's a sub creator. Tolkien believes that we can sub create. And so 
in the process, one of the Aranur, or these beings, angelic beings, sings a bad note. And he's known as Melkor. He just keeps going his own direction and sings a bad note. And he thinks he's, he obviously thinks he's being independent. He thinks he's being creative. You know, he's like the rebellious child, the one that always wants to, to simply stick out like a sore thumb. But in actuality, he doesn't realize that Aru, Aluvatar, knows that this is going to be. He gave them free will. And he knows that Melkor is, is going against him. But he also knows the end of the story because he's, he's the storyteller. Aru is the storyteller. God is the storyteller. He knows what events are going to be. He gives free will, but he also knows what the, which direction the free will is going to go because he is God. And so eventually their created is Arda, which is the earth. The heavens and the earth are created. And in Ver Tolkien's version, it takes on a little bit, you know, obviously he's, he's not going to copy the Bible completely. He does, he takes something that, and, uh, that kind of like surprises people. The earth is flat. It's in an oval shape, but it's a flat plate. And the two representations of the sun and moon are these two towers again. One is the silver tower, which is like the moon. And the other one is the sunlight. But of course, later on, uh, when the certain beings take on their guardians of the elements, their guardians of water, their guardians of mountains, their guardians of, of trees, one of them becomes the guardian or the angelic being of the trees and, and all the different elements of, of it, the oceans, the seas, everything. But Malkor then suddenly goes into the world and out of jealousy in the story, he destroys the tower that represents the, the two the towers that represent the pillars, the columns that represent the sun and moon. And thus, suddenly, Arda is gone through his fall. First, you had the fall from heaven, which is Melkor. Then he decides to disrupt creation. But in place of it, the Aru or the, uh, the Arda or these beings decide to replace the, the, the columns, the pillars of the sun and moon with two trees, a silver tree and a tree of, uh, of light of, that, that becomes a, still representing light and day. And of course, they had to give, they have, they're responsible, they have to reshape Arda a little bit. They created mountains, they created some continent, but it's still flat. And then later on, um, Malkor, during a, uh, some celebration, sneaks into the area where the trees are. And he brings with him a new dark being that represents the darkness. Because this was the darkness that he created, his malice. He brings in this spider. He stabs the two trees. And the spider drinks up the sap of the of the of the trees that represent the sun and the moon and again uh it causes disruption to creation and so what happens next is aru aluvatar had to step in and 
he created the sun and moon. Yeah, he created the sun and moon. Now, Malkor can't touch the sun and moon. But in time, what happened is another thing. Of course, the first children of Uluvatar wake up and it's the elves. Later on, it would be men. And it, it, again, it's a beautiful, beautiful way. He he basically, this is how the whole thing, eventually in time, the earth would take its full sh- form of, as a globe after the fall of Numenor, which is his version of of the flood and his version of Atlantis. Because that's what these stories are, as Tolkien understood them. They're basically the stories being told again. Each the rise and fall, as Tolkien understood it, there's always a rise and fall in every culture, in every civilization, in every history of the earth. And so when the fall the Numenorians fall into the sin of of uh depravity, like Babylon or whatever the fall the fall of the earth because again, like before the flood, there was another fall of creation. So everything begot depraved. And so what happened was when the flood came and washed away Numenor, Aru Aluvatar, because there's these lands of the West called the Undying Lands. And men were forbidden to go there and men became jealous that they couldn't go to these Undying Lands which where they could live forever because Sauron and Melkor told them lies that Aru Aluvatar and the, uh, are just lying and the elves just are lying to them because they don't want them to have immortality. It was The lands actually of Numenor was emerging, a marriage which I think between elves and humans. But humans could not, once elves marry into humans or get, in, get into a relationship with humans, they become mortal. They become human themselves, some of them at least. But what happened was when the Numenor fell and Aruelvatar did not want them to have access to the undying lands, he reshaped the earth and made it into a globe and hid the undying lands from them. And so the earth became a globe and the earth took shape to the earth that we have now. So it's very, you know, you know, basically, this is again Tolkien showing them because what happened after... Uh, the flood, you had the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel, the human race spoke one language. They had one mind, one one uh, goal. And so God comes down and visits the earth and walks through the city. And he sees that human beings are capable of doing amazing things. But because of the sinful nature, they're always going to be doing amazing things with corruption and self-destruction in it. And so basically he confounded the human race and the universe was changed again. The world, our world, our cosmology was changed again. And so we had not just different languages, but suddenly we became different nations and we became different cultures. And I guess you could say at that time was born the different colors of skin, different shapes, the Asians, Africans and other things was born. And so mankind became divided. And so the continents were born and the different cultures were born. That's, again, our cosmology, our universe changed. So Tolkien understood these things. He understood how how to bring in these divisions and how to explain them because that's, that's another fall. The, 
because now we're not divided. Now mankind has to learn to look past all our diversity. This is not something that these advocates understand. They, they, in actuality, they're using diversity and race and gender and sex as a weapon of self-destruction. They're not really making the world a better place. They're really using it as their own personal political means of self-destruction. Tolkien understands it quite differently from them. You know, it's a matter to me, to bring humility to man. Human beings are very prideful. We're very prideful people. The different languages and races is only to make us work harder to be more humble and to, to try to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, is to make us into more supernatural, to be more, to, to, to strive for more grace and to look and to try to overcome our temptations and sins and pride that's the reason why there's 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 a racial and ethnic and 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 um linguistic differences it's to keep us humble you know and instead the devil uses it to create racism that's it's a good way of understanding it so anyway um i tried the best i can to explain his uh cosmology um as best as i could uh i left out a few other storylines of course but pretty much you can see how tolkien very much based it on his uh catholic faith so in a sense if he said is a fundamentally catholic faith and even though he said that one should not try to find too much uh, hidden meaning or allegory, it's impossible because really in the end, I think he realized it's, an, it's impossible to do that because you can see Galadriel is very much a picture of the Virgin Mary, not completely, but there are aspects of her. There are certain situations, Arwen as well. Um, Aragon is a picture of Christ the King. Gandalf is the prophet. Um, uh, Frodo is like the priest. I mean, he, you know, the scene with him carrying the the one ring up uh, Mordor to Mount Doom. And Samwise is sort of like the um, Simon of Cyrene who helps him up sort of carrying the cross. Gandalf's fall into the pit with the uh, bell rock is a picture of... Um, of, you know, sort of like Christ descending into hell and then him coming back as Gandalf the White, you know, that image in the two towers where, you know, you have uh, Aragon, Legolas, the elf, and Gimli the dwarf where they cover their eyes in the bright light and then Gandalf, it turns out it's Gandalf. It's, sort of, it's a picture of the transfiguration where Christ took Simon Peter James and John up the mountain and then there's that transfiguration scene you can see it in icons and you know it's it's a picture of that it's clearly a picture of that then the scene where Gandalf is leading the army on the white horse to save the battle of Helm's Deep and the the orcs are surrounding El Helm's Deep it's a picture of the second coming he who rides on the white horse so as much as Tolkien 
made of hated metaphor and allegory, it eventually may always makes its way into literature. I think it's impossible for any artist to avoid it as much as he says he hates allegory or even the, the, the smell of it. It's impossible or whatever the word he used, the, any scent of it. It's impossible. You can't, you can't escape it. You can't escape it. You know, it's, we're all influenced by something to some extent, and we're all, uh, in a sense, painting a message. There's always something hidden within our message. We're always going to, you know, within even our storytelling or art or poetry or anything. It's all a picture of some metaphor of something, some allegory of some form. All right, so let's continue. The final impression from the new article is one of, okay, so we, um, here, okay, yeah, let me look at it again. The Vanity Fair piece is chock full of quotations from people quite happy to tell you what Tolkien means without having bothered even to get even a passing acquaintance with the professor's thoughts. So, for instance, an actor interprets the role of General Franco as an apt analog of Sauron's domination. Tolkien's, Tolkien supported Franco's side in the Spanish Civil War. So the executive producer defends the show's diverse casting. She either does not know or does not care that Tolkien identified his imaginary world rep repeatedly with Northwest Europe. So the Vanity Fair reporter says, unity as a central message of the Lord of the Rings, and so on. They, you know, these young people are always, always, they, they're trained to be advocates. You listen to them. They, 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 I mean, there was a guy, there's a fellow on YouTube. He's a former uh, television or executive. And he said that these young kids cannot pitch a simple summary of an idea. You know, like to pitch a story, right? Um, they can't even like say, all right, a um, a team of astronauts uh, from Earth are put together from several of the most powerful nations on Earth. China, the United States, United Kingdom, uh, Russia, and uh, maybe even someone from the Middle East, the most powerful countries on Earth. And the mission is they have to stop this giant asteroid that's heading towards Earth that could destroy the Earth or set the Earth back millions of years into the Ice Age. And on their mission on this spaceship, there, uh, this, this uh, uh, craft is to try to find a way to to push away this asteroid. But along the way, they find out that the asteroid is actually an alien invasion. And so there you there you have it, a simple pitch. I mean, that's a very poor one, but an idea of it. But what they'll do is they'll take that story and they'll put in gender. They'll come up with a transgender scientist or a, uh, a uh, led by a female transgender uh, 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 captain, and they'll they'll that's 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 the whole thing. That is the first thing that'll come out of their mind. That's the first thing that'll come out of their mind, because to them, 
your sexuality is your identity. Sexuality is the most important thing. They, that's how, they won't, that, that's, that's it right there. That's the whole point, right? And maybe they'll find out that the aliens are cisgender. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That's what they'll come up with. But they won't, they can't come up with, they don't realize the story is what counts. Everything else is just add-on. But to them, you are determined by your sex and your race. And you you are trapped in that. But in, in from a, from another angle, right? A different angle. All these are just accidents. Accidents of nature. All right? Then the virtue and virtue and, and and proper behavior, proper thinking, that to them is impossible. They don't believe in virtue. Your sex, your race, your gender, that determines everything. Right? You being a white male, that's a curse. That's it. That's how they'll think. And going on from there, why would Amazon bother to spend so much time and money on a work they neither respect nor understand? All of this is happening. All of this is happening, we are assured, because Jeff Bezos is obsessed with Tolkien. Here at last we come to something resembling sense. It is fitting for Bezos to be obsessed with Tolkien, as Tolkien was in a way obsessed with Bezos. Not that the professor ever met the Mong the, the Mughal, uh, of course, but the Amazon's executive representative, as well as any individual, could precisely could precisely those evils that Tolkien warned about in his novels. Bezos is <clears throat> the apotheosis of American corporate capitalism. Tolkien was terrified by the prospect of Americo cosmopolitanism and suggested that its triumph would be at least spiritually as dangerous as the victory of Nazi Germany. Tolkien was profoundly distrustful of the machine and the engineers who serve it. Jeff Bezos has put an ever-listening Alexa into millions of households and has launched his own space program similar similar uh, similarities similarities between bezos amazon and tolkien tolkienian evil could run to several pages but one is particularly relevant for our understanding of the rings of power series for augustinian and, and catholic tolkien all stories are ultimately about the fall and pride is the primordial sin but he defines this sin in a curious way, in Tolkien's Legendarium, the fall comes when a man clings too tightly to the things he has made, when the sub-creator wishes to be lord and god of his own private creation. When he does so, he will rebel. Okay, he will rebel against mor mortality. Pride seeks do uh, domination. Domination rejects death. Consequently, acceptance of mortality is the great acid test of virtue in Tolkien's world. The wise Aragon, Frodo, in the end, Galadriel, accept their limited span on earth and depart at their appointed time. 
The rebels do not. They seek ever new ways to prolong their grip on life. This is the motive, the motive behind the fall of Numenor and the corruption of Gondor, and indeed the forging of the rings of power to begin with. In a, in a remarkable coincidence, news broke last fall that Bezos has invested heavily in anti-aging technology, seeking to reverse the aging process and boost the human lifespan well beyond its natural range. One can only conclude that despite his obsession with Tolkien, Bezos has failed to understand the message of the Lord of the Rings at all, or perhaps he has understood it all too well. All this is all, all this, is there any room for hope? In all this, is there any room for hope? It is possible that Vanity Fair's reporting is inaccurate. After all, anyone who describes Game of Thrones as the spiritual successor to Tolkien can be, at best, marginally literate. But it appears very much as though Sauron has, for the moment, captured the ring. Amazon paid handsomely for the rights to Tolkien's world and seems intent on exploiting it for all it's worth. We may never see a suitable adaptation of Tolkien on screen, and it may be the Amazon series will poison an entire generation's encounter with Tolkien. But as a wise hobbit rem remarked in the face of darker in a darker hour than our own, they cannot conquer forever. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. I mean, that, that makes... Okay, uh, here, Ben Reinhardt. Ben Reinhardt is an associate professor of English and academic, academic dean of Christendom College. His new translation of Beowulf is available from Clooney Press. I'm going to check that out. All right, so, yeah, let's look at this fall of Numenor a little bit. To understand it, here it is, October 2021, October 2nd, 2021, and it's by Ben Reinhardt, Numenor and the Decline of America. This is good. So let's look at it. Dystopian fiction can offer a curious consolation in dark times. There is comfort of a sort in the knowledge that our current troubles were foreseen by others. This shows if nothing else, the evils of our age and are not chaotic. Hmm. Sometimes, uh, sometimes seem on the contrary, they conform a pattern that can be predicted and perhaps even evaded. Indeed. I imagine many of my readers happily compare 21st century America to our favorite dystopian world, a brave new world or 1984 or the Lord of the world. Today I write, to propose another, J.R.R. Tolkien's Akalabeth, the tale of the fall of Numenor. Akalabeth, this is, of course, Tolkien's one of his invented words. Suggesting that Similarian is an analog to contemporary politics is admittedly counterintuitive, counter, uh, as Tolkien repeatedly insisted he did not write allegory at all, much less overtly political allegory on the model of animal farm but this does not mean that his work have no relevance for the world we live in in Tolkien's native intellect his learning 
and above all his practical faith gave him a keen insight into human nature man's glory and frailty and his distressingly dis- 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 i'm sorry distressingly predictable patterns of sin it is therefore reasonable to suspect that tolkien's tale of the fall of numenor the greatest and most glorious kingdoms of men in his imagined world might tell us something about the decline of america the greatest power of the world has yet seen. Okay, so it's true. I mean, look around us. Look at the things that's been happening in the last couple of years, right? People pulling down statues, people calling for to defund the police. And now, of course, our borders. And then now we have a recession. Uh, we're constantly, I mean, think about it. We have leaders that are supposed to be Catholic, and you know, political leaders who keep pushing for things that go against the Catholic faith. And we have Catholic religious leaders, bishops and cardinals um, that don't say anything, that don't want to say anything, that are very quiet. They're afraid to, or maybe they hold on to these views. And now, I mean, look what's happening in Germany with the German uh, Catholic Church. The Catholic Church there is obviously going to be a schism eventually at some point and we have a pope that i think is going he's going through a very painful painful um i don't know what to say i i can I only say i don't think i think there's there has to be it's it's look it's difficult between intellect your battle of your intellect thinking as the world thinks and then your faith And there's always a constant war between the two. So, with this in mind, let us consider Tolkien's tale of decadence, corruption, and eventual catastrophe in Tolkien's myth, The Island Kingdom of Numenor was created as an earthly paradise for men who faithfully resisted the evil of Marguth, Tolkien's Satan, in the first age of the Middle-earth, but nothing in the world can last forever. And centuries after happiness and faithful religion eventually gives, gave way to Numenor, to decadence and corruption. Okay, yeah, they, they, were, they had to uh, worship Aru Aluvatar, which is God in the, middle, in the Middle Earth, in this island Numenor. They had a temple on a high mountain. And they had to climb, their king had to climb the high mountain and offer... Uh, sacrifices of fruit, grain, wine, oil to uh, a, a temple. So there's there is religion in in the Lord of the Rings. It's just not Tolkien doesn't put it. He doesn't play with it too much because he doesn't want to go too much elaborate with it. But they had to remain faithful. And eventually, what happened was they captured this. They captured Sauron disguised in another. I, the one who you see in the Lord of the Rings with the eye, the lidless eye, looking around for the ring. And he poisons the mind of the king and introduces human sacrifice. Okay, so the first cause of this fall from grace were the love of luxury and the fear of death. As Tolkien shows, these two vices are linked in mutually reinforcing vicious cycles. As the wealth and splendor of Numenor grew, the more enamored 
its inhabitants became, the work of their hands and the, and, and the less willing to leave it. They desire to escape from death and the ending of delight, and ever as their power and glory grew greater and their unique, uh, uh, the, um, their unquiet increased, the unquiet leads to mummerings against and eventually the open contradiction of the divinely imposed limits on their realm. But diminished faith and increased worldliness does not does nothing to help the men of Numenor. The face face death with greater confidence instead. The fear of death grew ever darker upon them, and they delayed it by all means that they could. Their wise men labored in, unceasingly to discover if they might the secret of recall, uh, recalling life, or at least of the prolonged of men's days. The attempt, of course, fails. Man is inescapably mortal. The obsession with avoiding death produces only greater fear of death. This gnawing fear leads, uh, leads in turn to ever greater luxury. The population becomes morbid and many die, but those that live turned uh, the more eagerly to pleasure and rivalry and at this stage, in Tolkien's imagined history, the worship of God becomes neglected by by all, but in a but a minority, the faithful, and even the faithful are not immune to corrupting effects of the culture around them. Interesting, and thus the crisis accelerates. Increased appetites need to be fed, after all, and so the men of Numenor turned their attention to imperial conquest and domination of other kingdoms of men. Their own land seemed to them shrunken, and they desired now wealth and dominion in Middle-earth. They dominate and exploit weak, uh, weaker men, and their colonization of Middle-earth brings them into one contact with Sauron, and given their morbid fear of death and unnatural uh, quest, um, given um, quest for immortality, it should come as no surprise that Sauron succeeds in unsnaring several of them into the surface of ring wreaths. A rivalry grows between Mordor and Numenor, a Numenorean colon, uh, colonies, as both seek absolute mastery over Middle Earth. The final crisis arise when the Numenorean king decides he will broke, uh, broke no rival, invade Middle-earth, and make Sauron his captive, and so quickly becomes ensnared himself. In no time at all, Sauron the captive becomes the king's counselor, and then his effective master, the power behind the throne. Under Sauron's effective rule, Numenor descends into darkness. The faithful are persecuted as enemies of, of the state, despised, honored, dispossessed, and closely guarded. On Sauron's advice, the king forbids the worship of Iluvatar, the one god. And finally, he, he formally established the worship of the satanic Morgoth as the lord of all, giver of freedom with human sacrifice. Thus, the men in Numenor pursue freedom into slavery and life into death. Very interesting. Okay. The kingdom descends into violence and chaos. The common rebel rebelling against the lords and the lords of crushing the commons and uh, amidst it all. It seemed that Numenorians, that they 
that they pros- uh, prospered. And if they were not increased in happiness in their riches, men, um, men, uh, and their rich men even richer, the divine land of gift has become a dystopian, di- diabolical nightmares, and and all powerful and a nearly in- in- inescapable demonic tyranny. The combination of temptation and persecution is strong enough that many even of the faithful abandon their ancient ways and uh, ancient ways uh, they abandon their ancient ways in the end and only direct divine intervention. Lubitar casts Numenor and lands like into the sea and saves the world. So it had to be destroyed in order to save the world. That that's what happened with the Tower of Babel. In order to save the world, it had to be destroyed. All empires that become too big and corrupt, right? And the same thing would happen with ancient Israel, remember? with um, In order to save the faith, the kingdom had to be split into two. And in order to save the people and the faith, Babylon had to be brought in to destroy the kingdom, the kingdoms of the north and the south. And the people had to be taken captive. In order for, you know, for the, also when they were taken captive, the Jews, their religion was spread all over the corners of the earth. The Greeks, finally Alexander the Great comes along and for a while he ruled and he spread Greek language everywhere and the translations of the Bible. And then eventually after him comes the Roman Empire. So there's always a rebirth and a destruction, but it, it, the faith survived and it, it went out to the world. All right, let's go on here. So the author says here, I leave it to the reader to decide whether these latter days of the American Republic with our consuming obsessive fear of death, an unnatural attempt to evade old age, our months-long riots and skyrocketing murder rates, our our repetitious mega corporations enriching themselves at the expense of ordinary citizens, the banners of perverse rebellion and pride waving over our uh, embassies in Budapest, in Dubai, and until recently Kabul, and above all, our rapid national adoption of, of a novel demonic creed and the increasing marginalization of exclusion of the faithful bear any resemblance to Tolkien's tale of the fall of Numenor. Though I confess, when I read stories of state-sponsored prayer to Aztec deities in California schools or ritualized abortion by Texas Texan Satanists in service of radical autonomy, it is difficult to ignore the resemblance of Numenor's worship of the devil as the giver of freedom. <laughs> if America has come to the to resemble the fallen empire, Tolkien would not have been surprised, even at the height of the World War II, when the rest of the world focused on the twin evils of Hitler and Stalin, he had recognized the dangers uh, um, inherit inherit in expansionists ambitions of America's governing liberalism as he wrote to his own son as he wrote to his own Christopher I do not I do find this Americo cosmopolitanism very terrifying uh queer mind and spirit uh, and um and spirit I am not really sure that it is it is victory 
victory is going to be so much better for the world as a whole and in the long run than the victory of Nazi Germany. He was particularly concerned about the all-encompassing rich of the new empire. As he wrote in another letter, the special horror of the present world is that the whole damn thing is in one bag. There is nowhere to fly to. The increased uh, technocratic power of the state has seen to that. And and as a result, decent folks don't seem to have a chance. What, what what was true of the state in 1943 is terribly true now. Fortunately, Tolkien's fiction offers a hope that his letter would seem to deny. As many readers know, the great recurrent theme in all of Tolkien's fiction is the catastrophe, the eruption of miraculous and um, unpredictable joy from beyond, the walls of the world the unlooked for happy uh, for happy endings what is less frequently recognized however is that in tolkien the catastrophe deliverance always comes as a price gandalf may return but first he must fall frodo may save the shire and indeed of middle earth but he must depart from them in akabath the akabalath the same pattern holds the um the faith, the faith, the same panel holds. The faithful Elendil and his sons escape the destruction and found new kingdoms in Middle Earth, but only by leaving behind the entire world they had loved and known. The frust, the frustrating death in life, seeking in a land of exile and elsewhere. So, so unsurprisingly, then Tolkien's grace is the inversion and cure of his original sin. The fall comes through avarice, pride, an unhealthy fear of death, redemption through detachment, humility, and a trusting acceptance of the divine plan. As Tolkien wrote to to Christopher in the darkest days of World War II, there is still some hope that, that, um, that things may be better uh, for us, even in the temporal plane, in the mercy of God. And though we need all natural human courage and and guts and all our religious faith and all our religious faith to face the evil that may be before us, we still, we may pray and hope. Um, we may pray and hope, and I do. Let us pray that we too may live to see the deliverance and have the great the grace to recognize it when it comes hmm that's good so yeah i mean you got to look at it i mean our country our culture is decadent <clears throat> this one this is um from uh, october 2nd 2021 numenor and the decline of america ben reinhardt and he um you know it's beautiful because it's this explains everything because we see it constantly rebirthing and catastrophe and you know and he goes here you catastrophe in other words something bad has to happen in order for something good to happen and it makes sense it makes sense quite well i mean i i um i have to say it's you know it makes perfect sense to what's happening around us our faith um our faith has this i mean it makes sense 
we we celebrate now our culture celebrates death and now the other day i heard they're crazy these these public school people are teaching boys to tuck in their their body members their their penis their testicles they're teaching the kids to be to doubt their sexuality to die, to doubt the gender that they're they're being that they were born in this is absolutely ridiculous is absolutely nonsense nobody should do this nobody should do this to these kids but you can see how this has become a problem they 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 really are indoctrinating kids to embrace this doubt that they were born into i don't like it it's sad and I think it's going to lead to a lot of hatred, a lot of anger. And the fact is, I feel we're going to be guilty. And you see, sin increases, destruction comes. Look what happened now. We got this war with Ukraine and Russia. Okay? If sin, if you have sinful thinking, why not? Why does this go to that direction? Why Why does it lead to, to greater sins? I mean, look, the subways are dangerous. Women are getting attacked. Uh, in the Bronx, these homeless guys are hiding areas where where women go in, and guess what's happened? They're attacking the women to steal them, to rob them. Then you've got this guys pretending to be women in sports, right? Pretending and serving women in sports. This is sad and destructive. It's it's just pathetic. All right, let's go back. Okay, full of Numenor. We came back to it. All right, so this is really I like it. I like this this guy. He's really good, but it's it's sad. It's sad what's happening, and I think Tolkien saw it. He saw it in a different way. Uh, in a sense, prophecy I think can come in even through art, and I think Tolkien was one of those people that uh, proved that. All right, so um, that's about it. And I hope uh, I don't know. I just I just don't want. I don't like it, but there's nothing we can do about it. Amazon got the rights to it. And I think it's a great idea that people should get involved in more literature these days. We need, uh, I'm going to try to read uh, Dante's allegory, uh, allegory, the uh, Dante allegory, his uh, divine comedy. I'm going to try to read Tolkien this year, but I want to study more of the Catholic faith. I want to improve my knowledge of these things. And I think it's good that we should start reading. And it doesn't matter if you don't understand it. There's a lot of good translations out there, especially of the Divine Comedy and other stuff like that. But I think people should read more. And I think the problem is, I think read a book. Not just a Kindle, but read a book. You know, And you know, I guess Audible, if, it's, if, if you have no time, but Audible is fine. I'm going to end it here. So I hope this is helpful. I hope it's okay. So it'll give you guys something and I'll try to get back soon with uh, something for uh, Palm Sunday. God bless.